0: Every Christmas, like every Easter, you as a uh, preacher, you try to do something new. you try to do something different um, to make it a, especially with when you have long-standing members and attenders in your congregation, you can't always preach the same exact sermon. And you can't always preach the same text in the same way. And so it's always this kind of creative juggernaut that you're dealing with. Uh, How do I preach a message uh, that is true to Scripture, that you're not reinventing, if you will, uh, but that also is uh, fresh to the congregation? And the reality is, is that the Scripture never changes that God never changes, the story never changes, and the truth of what He has accomplished for us never changes. And there are certain stories that you know that when you read them or you listen to them, that you can always go back to them. You can always go back to them, and you can always be reminded of why you like the story, of why that particular story has made such an impact on you, and I can name several. Um, I immediately jump to anything written by J.R.R. Tolkien, is that I don't care how many times I read it, it's always fresh for me. I can go back to uh, several different stories and authors. You can go to different movies. Every one of us have that particular movie that every time it comes on, you're going to watch it, right? Every time. For me, when Elf comes on, I'm watching it every time. When Quigley Down Under came on Netflix, it was like I was reborn. (laughs) And since it's Christmas, one of the greatest Christmas movies ever made, Die Hard. That will forever be a Christmas movie to me. But in all seriousness, those stories, we like watching them every year, those movies. We like reading them on a regular basis because... They tap into something in our lives. And that's the way it is with the gospel. Every now and then, I wonder, do we preach the gospel too often? Are we too repetitive? Do we say it too much? Are people getting tired of the same message? I don't think so. I think that's one of those stories. The birth of Christ, the life of Christ the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the return of Christ that will always be one of those stories that we go back to, that we cling to, and that we're moved by. Recently, I have been watching a show. I'm not going to go into the show. It's not a bad show by any means. I'm just not going to go into it. I've been watching a show uh, on Netflix and it goes off on Christmas Eve. So I'm trying to get it in before it goes off. It's an older show. And I'm intrigued by it because it's phenomenal storytelling. The actors in it are tremendous. And there are intriguing characters of all different sorts and of all different backgrounds. And one of the lead characters I was really excited about because it appeared if that, that, that character was going to demonstrate his faith... Christianity in a different light than what you typically see in Hollywood. Typically, when Hollywood presents a Christian, they present it in a way that is somewhat farcical, uh, a bit laughable, um, oftentimes shallow, and a character of what true faith and a true Christian really is. And so I was excited because I thought, here is a a very well-produced show that has a character in it that demonstrates what seems to be very authentic faith. One of the episodes came about late in the season where the entire episode was basically committed to that individual's faith and how they lived, out, lived it out. And Hollywood and this is not a sermon on Hollywood, this is leading me to where I'm going, couldn't help itself. It couldn't help itself. To that character, their faith and God's Word was not literal. It was not something that is objectively true. It was something that they chose for themselves, but there are other paths and that we can't really believe that this is God's word. We can't really believe that God created the heavens and the earth in the way that he did. We can't really believe all of what the scripture says about God is true, and about our lives is true, and about the human predicament is true. We can't believe that because this is just a story. It's a story to be interpreted from your own background, from your own context, from your own life, and it's a story that for some will have a completely different meaning than the intentions of the author. Now, why am I saying all this? Because we read the Christmas story every year. We read the Christmas story every year. And we understand that Christ was sent by God to rescue sinners from God's wrath from their sin, from the pits of hell. And we read that. And if that's not true, then I might as well be reciting Robert Frost poetry. Right? I mean, let's think about this. If this is not true, then what makes this better Then Robert Frost. Then Shakespeare. Then J.R.R. Tolkien. Then C.S. Lewis. Then Max Licato. Why don't I just get up here to keep things new and keep things fresh and to read something that might be more interesting, more exciting, because you haven't heard it over and over and over. But this is true this is true it is not fiction but it is a narrative of how god out of his abundance of love for us and after and because of a great jealousy that he has for his own glory sent his son as a lowly babe in a manger, humble, meek, mild, all the different adjectives you want to say. Because we have demonstrated over and over and over again that we could not save ourselves. We could not do it. And therefore God stepped down humiliated himself, if you will, to become us and gave his life for us. And that's why I will never stop preaching the gospel, preaching the birth of Christ, preaching the resurrection of Christ, and it may be the same story over and over. And I might throw a different spin on it just to make it a little bit fresh. But the reality of this is this. The reality of that is this. We dare not forget. We dare not forget that these stories are true. These stories are true. I love J.R. Tolkien. I love C.S. Lewis. It has the power to create imagination and cause us to think differently about life, cause us to get excited about life. We've been motivated by things, haven't we, before? You've read something or you've watched something, you're like, I'm motivated by that. And it causes us to gear up and set out, right? And do and, and maybe even live differently. But it does not have the power to change hearts. And the other thing that's important for you to realize is that the only one who can save is God. I can preach the gospel until I'm blue in the face. I can preach it. I could dance while I preach it. You don't want to see that, but I can do it. I, I can't save you. If you're a child, your parents can't save you. If you're a grandparent, you can't save your grandchildren as much as you want you want to wring your kids by the neck and say, believe, you can't do it. So I continue to preach the gospel. And so we're going to turn to Psalm 95. Now, why Psalm 95? Because of all the ways in which God sent his son as a priest, king, as savior, as redeemer, I am most fascinated by the fact that Christ was sent also as a shepherd. I find that fascinating that Christ was sent as a shepherd and we are called his sheep. And I find it fascinating. I'm going to tell you why here in a minute, but first I want to read Psalm 95 and I want to, I want to stop at verse partway through verse seven. We're going to carry it out, but not until the end. So really focus this morning. Psalm 95 reads this way. Come, let's shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. That's the first thing to remember. Let's enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let's shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. The depths of the earth are in His hand, and the mountain peaks are His. The sea is His. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of God of his pasture the sheep under his care can we pray together father i i pray that we're listening to these words that were read here from your word and that we understand the magnitude of what was written father i pray that we can rejoice as the psalmist here rejoices, and for all these reasons. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I just want to walk through this text real quick, and then I'm going to connect it to Luke chapter 2. And we're going to move fairly quickly through this, so kind of, you know, hold on. Here we go. The first thing I will say is this, is that when, he, when the psalmist here writes, come let us shout joyfully to the Lord, and you might even uh, su- substitute in there, Lord Yahweh or Yahweh, shout triumphantly. The first question is this, why are we shouting triumphantly in the first place? What gives us the energy and the motivation to shout triumphantly to this God? And the first is this, is because He is the, what? Rock of our salvation. He is the rock of our salvation. We give praise... We exalt the Lord because He is the rock of our salvation. If you are saved this morning, then you have reason to rejoice. You have reason to praise. Now, if you're not saved this morning, then there's really no reason to rejoice except for the fact that you're alive, right? I mean, you're alive. He could strike you down at any moment, any moment. So there's still reason to rejoice, but if you're saved, there's reason to rejoice triumphantly that we are triumphant. Remember what Paul says: we are more than conquerors, right? We can be triumphant in our rejoicing. So come let us shout joyfully to the Lord, shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. How often do we gather in worship? And when we are shouting and when we're singing, when we're praising God, we look like this. Shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing. Now, partly is because we've heard that song a million times, right? But the truth is, that's how we, that's sometimes how we come before the Lord, right? Now, I don't think that we need to be stripping off our clothes and dancing around in circles, right? But there should be some energy when we sing and when we shout and when we fellowship with one another. We are children of the King. Verse two, let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Hey, did you read that? Did you see that? Let us enter his presence. I'm going to tie it right back to Jesus right now. How in the world can we as sinners enter into the presence of God? How? Because of Christ. Because God saw fit to send Jesus as a babe to make a way for us. And so we can come into the presence of God as Christ as our mediator. Let's shout, how? Triumphantly to him in song. Again, in victory, in celebration, we shout to the Lord. Verse 3, for the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. I love how the psalmist says that, We are going to shout joyfully, not just because you are the rock of our salvation, but because you are a great God, a great King, and you are above all other gods. Why is our God above all other gods? Because all other gods are impotent. They have no power. They have absolutely no authority. Why? Because they don't exist. They're made of rocks and wood and marble. In today's world, they're made of it amusement and entertainment. They're made of jobs and power and bank accounts, spouses and children, Netflix, UK basketball. Toya's not here, so we won't mention U L, but she'll be watching this. Oh, but there's Christy. Sorry. UK's not playing real well right now anyway, but you get the idea, right? All of those other things, that we put before God, are impotent in comparison to the Lord our God, our Maker. And I love verse 4 and on. He says, the psalmist says, The depths of the earth are in His hands. Think of that. The depths of the earth. As deep as you can go. Places where we've never been. Places where we can only theorize, Right? We can only theorize what the center of the earth looks like. We can only theorize what places of the ocean look like. It's crazy how how little of the ocean we actually know. It's like some it's like some minuscule percentage of what we actually know of what's in the ocean. But who has that in his hands, God? God knows every inch of it. God knows every inch of the ocean. Why? Cuz he built it. He built it, he formed it, he created it with a word. With a word. And he didn't like pull together this hydrogen and oxygen together that was pre existent. No, he creates the hydrogen and the oxygen, puts them together, and places them in this place that is so extravagant that we can only know a percentage or so of what's actually there, but he knows it intimately. The depths of the earth are in his hand, and the mountain peaks are his. That highest mountain that we like to celebrate, Mount Everest. K2, Mount St. Helens, pick them. They're his. Every one of them, they're his. They're all his. He owns them. He forms them. He creates them. They are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands form the dry land. Recently, we're finishing up our semester right now, and I'm teaching a biology course, and um, I'll be teaching another one in the spring. And in this biology course, the last section, or the second to last section, is on evolution, and uh, that's always an entertaining section for me to teach. Uh, because I tell all the students for, at the very beginning, I have a little introduction as we begin the class, and I tell them that I'm a pastor, and uh, and I tell them a little bit about the church and about what I do. I want them to know who they're getting ready to be educated by. And then when we get to that section on evolution, I'm very frank with them. I said, "Folks, evolutionary theory is a theory." I said, now some of us will believe this and some of us won't, but one thing is absolutely true, that evolution is not fact. It is theory, but it is exceptionally important for me to teach you. Whether you believe it or not, you need to understand it because you're going into a world that says evolution is absolutely objectional fact, objective fact, that it's objective truth. And you, even if you are a believer who believes that the world is 10,000 years old and that God created all things in six days and on the seventh day rested, you need to understand that the world thinks you're crazy and that you need to understand what they believe. And so I teach it, and I teach it with fervor. I want them to know all the intricacies of it, So then at the end, they can say, it is absolutely crazy that you can believe that all that was created was created by chance, by randomness, that there is not a God in the heavens who who has such immense sovereignty and superiority and creativeness that he put all things together and thought this up and designed it in such a way. It's lunacy. And I don't mind saying that. It's absolutely lunacy. In fact, I would even say this. It takes a greater leap of faith to believe that all of this came together by pure statistics than it does to believe that a God, the God in the heavens created all things with his word. Because you better believe it. If there is a God and he is sovereign over all things, he has the power to snap his fingers and say, let there be light. And by the way, he doesn't even have to snap his fingers. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Lord, the Lord, our... You can see me singing that hymn right there, right? All right. For he is our God. So you see that personal relationship that we have with him? For he is our God. He is our God. He's our God. That's who he is. He is our God. He is our father. This is a proclamation for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. I love this. And here's where where we're tying it into the Christmas story is that all throughout scripture, the word is detailing God in so many different ways. But one of my favorites is that it details God as this shepherd and that we are his sheep that we are sheep of this pasture, that he is sovereign over us, and he is caring for us, and taking care of us, and nurturing us in every single way. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. That's what we are. We are sheep. Is there anything special about a sheep? Not really. Why couldn't have God called us a we are his lions, we are his bears. Oh my, right? Why couldn't he have done that? I mean, God is still God, and we're still created being. He could have just said, "You're our," I don't know. Think of something, you know. Our lizard king. I don't know. I have no idea. Okay, I have no idea. Now I just went to the office on that one, so that another illusion. Okay, but you get the idea, right? Is that God could have called the same thing? What does He do? He calls a sheep. Why? Because that's the power that we have. We're sheep we are sheep. But you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with being a sheep if God is our shepherd. If God is our shepherd. And so then we tie back to the Christmas story. It says that these angels come, and who do they come, for, come to first? They come to the shepherds, right? They come to the shepherds. Now, most commonly, when this passage is preached, all right, and it's true, there's nothing wrong with it, It they, it's preached in this way. In fact, I've done it. It's the fact that God has come to the shepherds by way of the angels to proclaim, first off, to them that this Christ is going to be born, right? And why does he come to the shepherds first? Because the shepherds are the outcasts of society. They are. They were squirrely guys, all right? They were dirty. They smelled. All right. In fact, that's one of the most uh, amazing things of the fact that God chose David, who was what? A shepherd, right? Here's this little guy out there and he's a shepherd. He's the least of all of his brothers, the least of the population, but God chose who? David to be the king of the people, right? And now they have these shepherds that are out in the field and the angels come and there is this momentous moment, all right, where the angels and all the hosts of heaven are singing praises to God. Why? Because this one baby is being born. This baby is being born. They come to the shepherds, to these outcasts. And what do the shepherds do? We got to go check this out. Now, that's the way this is often preached, right? And it's correct that God came to the outcasts, right? God came to the outcasts because here's the truth. We are all outcasts. We are all outcasts. The world wants you to believe that there is something uh, endearing about us that makes us amazing and that makes us uh, somehow uh, special. And it's not the fact that we've been created in the image of God. It's the fact that we have some sort of innate value of just being human right now. They are right. It's true. It's true, but they don't pin it on the fact that we are created in the image of God, right? The truth is, is that God created us. He created us in our image. But when we fell, we all became what? Outcasts. We were kicked out of the garden, out of his presence, right? But praise God, we can sing triumphantly. Why? In the presence of God, because Jesus has allowed us back in, right? So we're outcasts. That's the way that's typically preached. Here's the way I want to preach this morning. I think it's interesting that God sent his son and that Christ would be what? A shepherd. Because Jesus was an outcast. Jesus was an outcast. He was an outcast in his family. He was an outcast in his town. He was an outcast amongst the religious elite. He was an outcast. But he was an outcast, not because of sin, but because of his lack of sin and the message that he was bringing. Folks, I don't want to be an outcast because of my sin. But I am perfectly fine living as an outcast if it's because of the gospel that I preach. I'm fine with that. I will wear it as a badge of honor. Throw me out of the party. If it's due to the fact that I won't keep my mouth shut about Jesus, I'm okay with that. If I'm not the most popular kid in town because I love Christ and I want to be like Christ and I want to model Christ, fine. Kick me out of the party. Kick me out of the fraternity. That's perfectly fine. I'm okay with being an outcast. Just don't make me an outcast of Christ. God sends his son and he's a shepherd. And this is the beautiful thing about Christ, is that Christ chases down the outcast. Catch that. You know, oftentimes we will say, we will see somebody kind of lingering on the, uh, on the outskirts, the fringe, if you will, right? And they just, you know, the, the, the individual that just kind of drives you nuts because as much as you try to help them and you try, they always kind of go back to the same mess, Right. Right. And so at some point we're just like, I'm just fed up. I'm just, I'm just done with that. Right. Folks, that is the one sheep out of a hundred that Christ went and chased down. Remember he left the 99, right? and he went after that one, we are that one. You are not part of the 99. You are the one that was the outcast, that ran out, that was on the fringe, that was rejecting. And what does God do? He sends Christ to rescue you from yourself and from his own wrath. That is the shepherd who is also king. So Christ was rejected. He was cast out. Why? Because of the message that he preached. And so here's where I want to wind this down and bring it into the gospel focus here, okay? And it's this. Don't reject the message of Christ. Because if heaven is real, then so is hell. At the end of Psalm 95, it says this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at, as at Meribah, as on that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore my anger, they will not enter my rest. So what is the psalmist saying here? We are singing because God is the rock of our salvation. We can rejoice triumphantly because we are now in his presence because of Christ, All right, forward-looking because of Christ, because he he has the depths of the earth in his hands. He is holding the mountains. He knows the seas. He knows absolutely everything. And if you believe that he knows the intimacy of all that he has created in all creation, he knows you even more because he foreknew you from the foundations of the earth. He knows you intimately. He knows you intimately. And he is calling us through the gospel message that is preached. He is calling us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, Come, come. Come and repent and believe in the name of Jesus. Come and believe in the gospel. Come and believe that you cannot save yourself. Come and believe that this world has nothing to offer you that compares to what I have to offer you. Come and do not sacrifice temporary riches for an eternal weight of glory. Come and rejoice. Come and follow as sheep to the shepherd who is Christ come, do not harden your hearts. The people in the wilderness, what did they do? They hardened their hearts. and They did not enter His rest. Christ has a message through the gospel saying, come and believe and you will enter my rest. That message caused Christ to be an outcast. I find it interesting that the message was proclaimed to the shepherds first in that field. At the birth of Christ, not so much because they were outcasts, but because Christ was going to be an outcast because of that message that is paramount for our salvation. So this morning, this is what I want to tell you. Believe the word of that shepherd king. Believe the fact that God created the heavens and the earth. Believe the fact that He created you too. Believe the fact that He loves you, that He wants what's best for you, that He cares for you, that He desires that you would come to know salvation. Believe the fact that God's wrath is real. Believe the fact that God's love is greater still. Believe the fact that Christ is here, that Christ reigns, that Christ did die, but victoriously, triumphantly rose to, from the grave and now sits with the Father mediating on our behalf. And because of that, we can come into the presence of the Father without fear, without terror, but with reverence and triumphant. Believe that. You cannot save anyone. I cannot save anyone, but the gospel that is preached has the power to save. Believe it.